we serve the people that keep order in our society. And for us to be behind them, supporting them with their uniform, to me is a very honorable industry to be a part of. The Uniformer. Insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms, image apparel, and public safety equipment. The Uniformer is a production of the North American Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD. Hello, welcome to The Uniformer. This is Rick Levine from the NAUMD. I am thrilled today to be sitting with uh, Benny Belcher. And Benny is a thought leader and veteran of this industry, and we're going to hear a little bit about his, his origin story, which I love, like a superhero in sourcing that he is. And uh, But, you know, uh, Benny, I've been starting these podcasts, and I know you have a recent change in title, so uh, perhaps we could just start there of saying, what do you anticipate the activities of your new role as vice president stationware at Lion will be? Yeah, so Lion uh, as a brand, I always knew Lion uh, ever since I was in the public safety space. As a brand, they're probably best known in recent years for what they call their uh, turnout business, the bunker gear uh, and or the uh, essentials, which are the helmets, the gloves, all the NFPA certified products that are used during uh, structural or wildland firefighting. They have always, since their origins, had uniforms. However, uh, over the past uh, probably decade or so, the uniform division has, they have lost focus or not put any focus there in terms of new innovation or uh, updating designs and uh, keeping up with the, uh, with the industry, so to speak. So, and it shows in the current assortment. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons I agreed to come on board was I saw the opportunity with the brand such a legacy brand in the fire services, uh, there's no reason we can't be a major player, if not the major player in the uniform space as well. Uh, so I think the, the brand equity is there already. My job and where my focus will be is gonna be updating that assortment that we will refer to as stationware and stationware accessories. A lot of people don't appreciate the amount of apparel that happens in a uh, fire EMS EMT department that goes well beyond turnout gear, right? When when we when we think of a firefighter, we think of what they're wearing when they show up to do <laughs> the ultimate job, which is save people's lives and put out fires. But there's a lot of time that these uh, fine men and women spend outside of doing that particular role and what they wear throughout that experience, what they turn up at public events um, wearing, what they wear at the station, thus calling it station wear, is, you know, is super important to their lives and uh, how they spend their time. And they perform a lot of work at the stations themselves. So I love what you're describing because Lion has such a wonderful reputation um, in the turnout space, and to apply that now to other areas of a firefighter's lifestyle on the job, if you will, um, is is a great idea. Am I saying it back correctly? Uh, the only change I would make in your statement is reapply, because uh, Lion's origins are in uniforms, and uh, they they did very much 
own a, a large part of that market share, uh, you know, in, in earlier years. Uh, it's just in the recent years that they've sort of lost that focus. And I'm here to bring that focus back. So maybe I am simply expressing the stereotype that you that you 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 noticed, uh, and um, all all due respect to Lion then for you know for that and for recognizing you um, to come in and help with all of that. Um, you know, I thought that your uh, coming of age in the apparel business, Benny, was at Gauls because you had spent you know, uh, 15, you know, years, I believe I'm getting it right, 14 years there. And for many uh, people, that is, you know, um, half their career. <laughs> and but then I have come to learn that you have a, a very rich background in sourcing um, before even your time at at, at Gauls. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I grew up down uh, near uh, a town called Bowling Green in Kentucky and went to school at Western, uh, joined, uh, spent a little time in the military in order to pay my way through school. But basically through a friend of a friend right out of school, I was hired at Fruit of the Loom. Their world headquarters is based in Bowling Green. And that at that time in, uh, I think it was 91, they were starting a brand new department called sourcing. Uh, up until then, they had pretty much done all their own manufacturing in the U.S. And I think they may have had one factory in Mexico at that time, but they were starting this new, new uh, division. At that point in my life, I couldn't have told a woven from a knit, uh, didn't know anything about textiles or apparel, but they were willing to invest in me. And uh, so I spent the first several months uh, with Fruit of the Loom actually learning how to do yarn spinning and knitting, circular knitting, doing the uh, spreading and the cutting, uh, learning how to make patterns and markers. Uh, and then finally at a sewing machine, literally operating an overlock machine. I was laughing earlier with you, uh, a much younger version of me one day, I remember sitting at an overlock machine sewing and I, I was uh, much younger and, and less humble uh, I remember thinking, you know, uh, I went through the military and went through college and here I am sitting at a sewing machine. So I didn't realize the benefit of that education they were giving me, uh, which really was the foundation for my what would become my career in the uh, in the apparel industry. Did that for several years and then uh, got a call from a, a company called Carhartt. And uh, it was almost laughable because they they. Uh, I remember the call. They said, we're starting a new department called sourcing, and we think you might be able to help us. Uh, so I went there thinking that I knew a lot. Um, what I didn't realize was the world between knitwear and wovens is two different worlds. Uh, and, and those listening that are in the apparel industry understand that. But So I had to spend some time in uh, Carhartt's factories as well, learning the nuances between knits and wovens. And it was... Uh, it was a pretty intense education. And then uh, off we went, uh, developing processes and people to create a sourcing team. Shortly after that, I went to a company called Premium Wear, which used to be known as Munsing Wear. Uh, that's the little penguin for those of you who don't recognize the uh, maybe the name. And then in uh, 2004, I get a call from a company called Galls in Lexington looking for a uh, director of merchandising for soft goods. And uh, you know, wound up spending 15 years there and uh, 
that's probably uh, where I became known within the public safety space, uh, even though I'd spent years in the apparel space prior. But uh, uh, it's been a, a wonderful uh, experience. And, uh, you know, at Gauls, I had to learn other product categories as well that I didn't have experience with up until then, such as footwear and body armor and bags and packs, uh, some accessories. So it was quite a learning curve there as well. All right. So a couple of things are coming to mind here. One is I'm so amused that you thought, hey, was this a tricky way just to hire me as a sewer? And you just didn't want to call it that. So you tell me that I'm going to be sourcing. And uh, although no, none of us knew, you know, at the time what sourcing meant, which is a really interesting concept to me, because I think about import export as uh, the most ancient of international commerce the east india company you know doing uh invent helping us invent it all and and the dutch you know uh, uh bringing things from around the world and and to hear you say that an apparel company called you in 1991 saying or you know in the 90s let's just call it and saying we're starting these sourcing departments and that was only the 1990s well you know, I have shirts in my drawer that, you know, are older than <laughs> that are older than that. So that really amazes me. And I bet a lot of listeners are surprised to think that the concept of sourcing within the apparel industry is not really as ancient as we all think. Now, we may have all been buying components from other places, but for the most part, we were, you know, pretty close to um, entirely, you know, a product was born from 100% U.S. pieces. But now, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's we everywhere in the world, um, uh, things can, can come from. And so you, you get into this sourcing, you're a pioneer in what we now know of as sourcing. And then an interesting thing happened. You told the evolution of then arriving at Gauls, and it turned into merchandising. So I'm a little fascinated by the nuance of that, because I've talked to other professionals who are in the merchandising, and in some ways, I guess I didn't realize how interwoven, <laughs> to keep it on the fabric term, uh, parlay, uh, how interwoven that is with sourcing. So what's the difference, Benny, between sourcing and merchandising? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so at Gauls, because they have, as you know, they're the, the, the primary or largest de uh, dealer slash distributor of public safety uh, gear and equipment in the country, they have probably, I, I don't want to quote for them, but roughly a thousand national brands uh, or companies, suppliers that they, you know, buy and sell products from, but they also over the years developed uh, private label brands, house brands. And when I was there, there were four brands, four house brands. And so that's really where, when I refer to sourcing, development, design, sourcing, uh, that really was in the uh, private house brands. And then the merchandising part of the job was more about managing suppliers and brands that are, you know, national within the public safety space. And, and that entails, you know, a whole different skill set and a whole different set of rules and uh, kind of processes. So I'm going to be real crude about it then and try to say it back 
uh, as if I've never heard of any of this. Sourcing is if we're manufacturing the products ourselves, and merchandising is if we are selling other people's finished goods as part of our offering. I think in the context of goals, that, that is accurate. Merchandising is a word that gets thrown around. Uh, some people, when you say merchandising, it means uh, basically doing planograms and setting up a, uh, you know, a brick and mortar retail space. Some people refer to merchandising as like web merchandising, how you categorize a website, curate the assortment, organize it, search, uh, all that. So merchandising is a broad, uh, a broadly used term. And, and all of the above was involved at, at Gauls, by the way. Uh, it was just in my role, I was a lot more focused on managing the national brands and then sourcing and developing the private brands. And then there were teams of people in marketing, for example, working on the uh, web merchandising. There were teams in uh, what uh, Gauls refers to as retail. Uh, it was really service centers and, and retail uh you know, focused on merchandising those brick and mortar locations. And you were a part of Gauls through much of the roll-up that has been happening for the past, you know, decade, uh, where they go from a couple of locations uh, and a very strong catalog business and web business to now, I believe, the latest count is something like 80 points of presence, 80 physical retail locations. Um, did that affect your vision of how this industry works? Did um, your role in the sourcing world uh, start to shift as the company picks up more and more retail operations? How did that affect your your job? Yeah, two, two ways that come to mind. Uh, one is as Goals went out and acquired uh, companies that were mom and pops, regional, single store, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, up to five or six locations. Uh, one of the things it did was uh, create challenges for uh, what we called uh, integration. So if, if you're in the public safety space, chances are you're selling some of the well-known brands, be it 511 or Elbico or Fetchheimer or whatever. Uh, or Bates, store good on the footwear side. So uh, there's there's only so many brands in the space. So there's a lot of overlap in terms of those national brands. You know, for the most part, everybody sells those brands that that uh, does distribution. So if you can imagine, uh, you know, thirty plus companies acquired. Uh, each time that happened, you had to take their data, their item numbers, their SKUs that they had set up in their system all the pricing and integrate it with the goals item numbers pricing and system uh, so that became a big part of what we did in the earlier uh, years of acquisitions ultimately goals created an integration team that would uh, basically lead those types of of efforts but that was one thing that we were heavily involved in because merchandising managed the item numbers and the setup and pricing and all that in kind of a reverse way, uh, it also opened up a lot of new possibilities for the house brands. So the people that used to compete against Gauls now all of a sudden could sell Gauls brand products to their contracts or within the uh, brick and mortar locations. So it really opened up a lot of possibilities for the house brands 
as the expansion was taking place. That makes a lot of sense, that it would affect both channels, of course, and the startling rate of the integration must have been, you know, quite a, a mountain to climb because, you know, many and many of these were retailers, dealers, distributors that had been around for quite a while. And if you visited their stores, not necessarily everything was inventoried, uh, not necessarily everything was in a retrievable data set that you could wrap your, your head around quickly. Um, and then others were, but I imagine that, um, you know, that it, it, it's interesting that then a team ended up having to be devoted to that. And from a, a scaling and sourcing, you know, perspective, that was a whole different set of challenges then for you because you couldn't necessarily predict the rate of adoption for your house brands. So inventory prediction became a big part of how you uh, didn't sleep at night or how did that go down? Well, not only the, uh, just the sheer scale of it, but uh, you know, one of the reasons, or I should say one of the byproducts of acquisitions are that you also acquire uh, their contracts that they hold in their geographies or, or any geography for that matter. And uh, again, that, that brought all the opportunities to then spec in the house brands, which, you know, oftentimes we're at more, we were bringing those in at more attractive uh, landed costs than some of the national brands. So um, there was a fair amount of uh, activity, not just in the physical locations, but on the contracts that those companies uh, held at the time of acquisition. All right. You said landing costs. Let's talk about that because it is insane out there right now. I saw an article, Forbes or somebody, I don't know where, saying Home Depot just leased an entire container ship just so that they could control, you know, uh, it themselves. I'm hearing from manufacturers of, you know, $20,000, $30,000 just for the container. They're paying to take to ship empty containers around the world rather than it being the responsibility of the shipper just so they could say, well, if we ship it, you know, it's ours, okay? I mean, it's nuts right now, and it is affecting everything. So um, how do we solve it, Benny? <laughs> If uh, if I had that answer, I may not be, uh, you know, having this conversation right now. But I, I do. I, you're absolutely right. All that is happening, and it's very painful to deal with. Um, what it's forcing us to do is is look for other alternatives. Uh, other alternatives being, um, you know, if if you wanted to stick with the manufacturing model that you have let's say you're bringing goods in from asia on a full package basis but you're having those struggles with uh containers it, it goes farther back in the supply chain by the way uh, if you're producing in vietnam or cambodia for example chances are the raw materials are still coming out of either china or taiwan so uh, those raw materials have to get to the cut and sew location before they can even produce the uh, the goods often. And then then you've got the container issue to face. Oh, and then by the way, when the containers arrive at the port, you know, uh, they're circling like sharks for sometimes days, if not weeks, because of the shortage of, uh, of you know, personnel in the port. So 
it's it really does affect every step within the supply chain. So again, I don't have any magic answers, but one uh, one thing that some companies are doing is, uh, you know, they're they're filling the supply chain up, meaning they are trying to keep raw materials on hand at the cut and sew facility. So they're buying ahead, maybe in grayish goods forms. They don't even know what colors yet they, they're going to need. Uh, or, or maybe they're holding, you know, the fabric at the mills, but it's in grayish form. Then they're holding, uh, you know, trims and, and finished fabric at the uh, cut and sew location. In some cases, they're asking the cut and sew location to hold finished inventory. And then they're ramping up and holding more inventory in their U.S. Fab, uh distribution. So it really is a matter of trying to fill up that supply chain in every nook and cranny that you can touch. Now it's a big investment and in some cases there's risk involved, but uh, it helps to relieve some of the pressure in terms of lead times or, or wait times when you have uh, uh, you know, those, those demands on the uh, inventory. Another thing it's forcing a lot of people to do is take a hard look at what I refer to as nearshore sourcing. So basically Latin America, uh, the Caribbean, uh, uh, and in some cases, if, if possible, and depending on the products, even coming back to the U.S., uh, which, you know, that's, that's an exception, but it's forcing us to look at all that. The challenge there is uh, when this mass exodus happened, you know, back, starting back in the 90s and up, up to and including current, uh, mass exodus of fabric mills and cut and sew facilities uh, took place, you don't have a lot of availability or capacity in the U.S. And even in Latin America, it's limited. Uh, and then you have to get the raw materials somewhere. So the raw materials uh, are largely uh, still coming from Asia. Uh, not all, but but I would say the majority. So there, there are definitely challenges even with a nearshore approach uh, for the types of products that we source in public safety. So did we totally shoot ourselves in the foot thinking that we were all so smart with just-in-time delivery that we, because the the world is flat and there, you know, we all, we, you know, I can be on, um, I mean, we're, we're recording this on Zoom at the moment, but I could be on Zoom with anyone on the planet having this instant, you know, conversation in real time, basically for free. Right. And I, I'm just using that as a, a comparison to how spoiled we all got that we could move goods around relatively inexpensively. Yes, it costs more than the price of a stamp, but, you know, not much when you think about how inexpensive fast fashion and apparel and, you know, the whole consumer world became when it comes to textiles. Um, and, and we got spoiled as producers because we could move this product around so easily. We didn't have to sit on it. Um, the pandemic, uh, another um, uh, leader said to me, you know, one of the lessons from the pandemic was how important cash is. Like, we, you know, if, we, if you're not keeping enough cash around, you know, you're gone when something like that happens. And it, it sounds to me like you're saying, hey, one of the lessons from the pandemic is don't just assume you know, the supplies are going to be there, that we actually do need to keep more things on the shelf um, uh, ready to go in in all states of the vertical, right? Uh, from, you know, from the, fi from the fiber to, 
you know, to the finished good. And I mean, is that one of the lessons we're learning that we actually have to go back to holding inventory at every level that we can think of where inventory is um, a, a, a factor? I, I think, um, I hope this is a temporary thing. I think the pandemic uh, definitely caught us in a somewhat of a complacent state uh, in that definitely a, a large portion of the imports were coming from Asian countries. It, the pressure on China had started years before because of the rising middle-class slash labor costs out of China. So people were already starting to migrate to other Southeast Asia countries like Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar, uh, you know, and, and even over in Central Asia, Bangladesh, India, and so on. But um, each one of those has their challenges, uh, pros and cons. But I think when the pandemic happened, uh, our reliance on, uh, we'll say, Asian manufacturing definitely exposed a lot of weaknesses. And frankly, it won't, it won't turn around quickly. You don't go to even the U.S. or certainly a Latin country and just start up a, a fabric mill and, and have it up and running, you know, in a matter of weeks or months. It's a, it'll be a very long process. Now, there are some good mills in Latin America, still a few good ones in the States, but again, that's very limited capacity. And you're competing with uh, other markets, you know, the athletic market, the Nikes, Under Armors, and uh, Adidas of the world. You're competing with the fashion market. So everybody wants those same uh, raw materials and that same cut and sew capacity that we're vying for. And it really, uh, it really makes it tough. But back to the statement, I hope it's temporary. Uh, you know, I, we could probably do a whole opinionated conversation around the pandemic, but I certainly hope with, uh, with vaccines and herd immunity and all the things that we all have learned and, and see every day in the news that this begins to settle into some pattern. Uh, but I think until then, we have to work really hard to educate people uh, and, and set the expectation around lead times and costs. Those are tough conversations, but uh, if a company is going to remain healthy and, uh, and, and stick around for the foreseeable future, they can't continue to absorb those costs, and they certainly can't pull a rabbit out of their hat and make the lead times quicker than they actually can be. Do you think that some of the things we've been talking about then will affect uh, apparel design and, you know, production and fulfillment and, and, and what ways will it then affect kind of uh, from, you know, we've been talking about the production of the actual goods, but as a merchandiser, Benny, <laughs> you're also involved and responsible for, you know, ultimately how we're going to get it in the hands, that last mile, so to speak, uh, what, you know, get it in the hands of everyone. And, Will all of this um, affect the rest of the, once we have the finished good, how will it, how is now it going to affect the styles, the fabrications, the delivery, the fulfillment, um, when we've got these scheduling challenges and um, geographic production challenges, et cetera? As you know, in the public safety space, we don't follow a typical uh, calendar like a, a fashion or a uh, sportswear or activewear brands would follow. In other words, we really only have a couple of seasons and that's dictated by climate. 
So uh, very broadly, we could say, uh, you know, in the springtime, people wear polo shirts and lightweight outerwear. And in the fall, they wear heavier weight outerwear and maybe long sleeves. Uh, not always true, but in general, that's sort of a pattern that's followed. And that's about the extent of the uh, uh, seasons uh, within public safety. Having said that, we still have calendars that we create and we follow to make sure that when we launch a short sleeve polo, we don't launch it in uh, you know October or November because you're off season there as far as the heavy uh, the heavy buys. So I honestly see those calendars having to be adjusted. Uh, we may skip a season, uh, and and I I say that because you know we again we were caught by surprise in the fact that the pandemic has lasted as long as it has and it's affected the supply chain the way it has you can't make up uh all of that ground so it's almost like we all have to adjust our calendars to probably skip a season and in, in terms of your question around innovation and uh uh you know launches product launches and so on it definitely slows things down when you can't physically be uh, at the fabric mill or at the cut and sew facility working on the ground with those folks on development uh, and designs. Uh, you know, everything has to be done either via video chat or FedEx packages or UPS packages, you know, back and forth, back and forth. So it, it really stretches that development and design timeline out and it's frustrating. It's really frustrating for those of us that are on the back end doing that work. But when I try to talk to a salesperson or a dealer or distributor, uh, it's very frustrating because they don't understand or really care about all those nuances and details that happen. It's just, when can I get my stuff? And why is my stuff so expensive? So it's a, it's a balance that we have to find between educating and setting the expectation Oh, and don't use that as an excuse. Uh, still, you have to deliver. You have to do what you say and say what you mean. But um, I think it's a balance of all of the above. In the world of sourcing, is sending team members to physically be present at the plants a major component? And has that greatly affected what's happening now for the past year and a half and is likely going to affect the next year and a half as well? Definitely, uh, and that's that's sort of what I was referring to uh, in my last statement. But uh, what you can do over there on a two-week trip, uh, where you're, you know, those are long, grueling days and long, grueling trips. But um, and my family and friends, oh, oh, you get to go to Vietnam, you get to go to China, whatever. Yeah, I get to go and work in a factory or or with a group of merchandisers in a room for, you know, twelve hours a day for two weeks. But uh, having said that you get so much accomplished when you're there and you see the innovation in fabrics and uh, fabric treatments and designs way ahead of the market. So that's where a lot of the magic is captured and you can, uh, that's where you try to get exclusives or you might be first to market with a, a particular feature or, or something like that. But uh, all that has been um, hampered with the pandemic because you have to do everything, as I mentioned, over video or email or just through courier packages. So it uh, it affects it in every way, not only time, but quality of, uh, of the uh, outcome. I had not considered that part of the nuance. 
I, it mostly, probably mostly affects the new, uh, the innovative, the you know the fresh approaches to performance and technology and construction. Uh, but our, our standard lines, our stock lines, have still been moving. Um, but it's it's going to be a frustrating, probably few years ahead. I'm not putting words in your mouth. These are my words. It's going to be a frustrating couple of years coming up because we missed this opportunity to preview the innovations, to think about, to wear test innovations, to uh, to, to get a, a grip on all of that that might be brand new and then turn that into products that our end users um, not along with us and agree um, or have asked for, and now we're seeing places we can help them, but we can't necessarily develop the product because we haven't been able to get over there and and sit at the machine like Benny did, you know, <laughs> back in the early days and see actually how the machine is handling it. You get a you get to to touch the garment and and, and have a sense of the hand to use an old school uh, word for it yep. and. Uh, that's that's so critical to what we do. At the end of the day, we're all producing a physical textile-based product. Um, we could, you know, setting equipment and gear aside um, that that has its own nuances. But in the textile space, we've been missing a key component of this, which is getting together with our world international partners in person in order to be able to agree upon the specifications. And there's certain things that we can do over Zoom <laughs> uh, and certain things we can't, yeah. which is really interesting. Am I saying it back correctly? I, I think so. And, and to your point, the stock products or the existing products have kept moving, but they're moving a lot slower as we've just, uh, as we've just discussed. The supply chain is creating havoc on the existing items. The new items can be developed, but it's a much, much slower process. And you hit the nail on the head with the uh, hand of the fabrics. You know, you literally have to wait for a package before you can comment on that or judge color or, or look at a zipper or a button or any other uh, aspect, of, you know, physical piece of the, of the product. The other thing that's really um, suffering during this time is the uh, interaction with the supplier. You know, I learned a long time ago that you have to have relationships at all levels. So you got to break bread with the owners and the uh, executive team and get trust and get to know them on a personal level. Uh, and then in the in the factory, you have to uh, first and foremost, always treat people with respect and uh, get that relationship. And that's where you get. Um, those, those favors that you always, always need later on, whether it's less than minimum order quantity or uh, bumping line in the production lines or whatever, uh, you, you better have those relationships and they better be long and, and, and trusting and, uh, and, and already in place before you ask for those favors. But just the, uh, the human element, you know, being able to say, and by the way, uh, English is their second language, uh, if not third or fourth. So these folks, uh, a lot of times things are lost in translation over a video call, you know, uh, facial cues or, or, or words that we use uh, and, and same in emails. So being there in person and having a good laugh while you're working so hard to develop things, uh, it's all lost. 
for at least temporarily. I'm smiling because I'm going to tee you up for something here. That whole uh, connection concept, meeting the principals, meeting the owners, of course, you know, to plug the association, that's been a strong part of what we believe the benefit of the NAUMD, you know, has been over the years. Um, and I know that um, you have expressed that before, that uh, that the, the association has been helpful in building those relationships. You know, it's going to sound like you, uh, I'm a paid or endorsed uh, spokesperson here for NAUMD. I'm, I'm, I'm not, folks, but uh, I, I sincerely mean it when I say I always saw the value uh, and still see the value in what the NAUMD offers. Uh, in the time uh, I started attending in 04, uh, up until now, the NAUMD has evolved with the times. Even though there's a lot of the same faces, um, we've all had to evolve with the times in terms of uh, what the NAUMD does for each of our organizations. For me, it's not the glitziest or largest show, but in terms of quality of networking, and it lasts far beyond the convention that happens. It's for me, it became year round. You know, I could call a, I'll just call somebody out. I could call a Mike Marmer at any time and ask a question about emblems, or, you know, I could call uh, a Phil Newman and talk about, you know, sweaters or, or the Canada, you know, market versus us. All these friendships and relationships that we develop, even with competitors, by the way, uh, can be healthy and can be productive if you, uh, if you take it in the, uh, I think, the context that it's intended. One of the first things I did when I joined Lion, uh, as I got to know the team and, and started you know, my onboarding, is you know, what trade associations do we belong to and what trade shows do we attend? And they went through their list. And as you would imagine, most are fire related uh, or medical related, which makes, again, total sense. But uh, NAUMD was not mentioned. And I asked, why not? Uh, and they said, well, <laughs> you know, based on what we've allowed happen with our station where, you know, we haven't had that kind of a focus. And I talked to Mark and uh, I said, hey, I've had great success with this in the past. Do you have any issues with me joining Lion uh, or entering Lion as a member of NAUMD? And he said, absolutely not. He said, if you think there's value there, you know, join and attend. So I'll, uh, I've already joined and uh, the company and we'll be in San Diego in October. I shamelessly teed you up for a plug for the association, <laughs> knowing that you were a That's fan. Okay. Uh, but I appreciate uh, you, you, you honoring that. <laughs> um, one last question. So uh, someone fresh out of school comes to Lion and wants a job or is thinking about this industry. And, you know, there's two approaches. One is we try to talk them out of the job just to make sure they actually want the job. <laughs> I've, used, I've used that. But, of course, in this uh, day and age, uh, talent is so hard to come by. Um, you know, we, we definitely want to be recruiting instead of being as selective, perhaps, but I'm getting, uh, I'm going off on too much of a tangent. Uh, what do you say to a young person who's considering our industry? What's great about it? What are the benefits? I was asked at Lion when I was interviewing with them, what, what are some of your greatest accomplishments? Uh, and one of the things that I'm most proud of is over the years at Gauls and even back further when I was uh, at, even with Carhartt, one of the things I've always tried to have a focus on is 
young people uh, that were already on the staff or interns, which, uh, you know, we created a partnership uh, many years ago with Dr. Easter over at the University of Kentucky. And I forget, I lose count, but we must have, you know, hosted eight or more interns during my years at Gauls. Uh, and uh, I, I always love to mentor. Uh, I've been mentored and still am, even at my age, uh, still learning and, and still uh, ask folks in the industry for advice. And uh, uh, so, but anyway, back to your question, what I always told interns or uh, young staffers is, you know, you can make of this what you will. It's, it's not the uh, fashion industry. It's not uh, you know, you don't get a lot of glitter and pyrotechnics with this uh, p- particular market, but we, it sounds a little hokey, but we serve the people that keep order in our society and their jobs today are tougher than ever. And for us to be behind them, supporting them with their uniform, which is their image or their body armor, which saves their lives uh, or their gear that they use every day uh, performing their duties to me is a very honorable industry to be a part of. And frankly, I was away from it for a couple of years between Gauls and Lion. And professionally, I was not happy. It was, uh, it had become part of who I was and uh, I missed it. I stayed in touch with the right people and, uh, uh, you know, here we are. But I I would just say that there's a lot of honor in it. uh, And there's a lot more to learn once you get in the seat uh, than what you're learning in school. Academics might teach you the textile aspect of it, or even the construction or design of a garment, but all the other things that make this business work, uh, you can't learn that in school, at least not a school that I'm aware of. Uh, I didn't learn it in school. I've never known anyone that did. It's time in the seat and it's having a good mentor or mentors that you trust that are going to lead you in the, in the right manner. Well said. Well, well said. I really like that answer, Benny. Benny, it was such a pleasure talking with you today. I appreciate you taking the time to, um, to sit down with us. My pleasure. Look forward in the uh, future to uh, a lot more Lion uniforms and station wear being out there in the market. What's the website? Com, lionprotects.com. Lionprotects.com. We got it. Mm-hmm.